The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown to zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown podcast and radio show. Today, we're speaking with Elizabeth Hines. She is from Solar Oyster. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Laura, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So I don't know a whole lot about oysters, so I'm looking forward to learning about them. And also, there is a really cool project that you guys are working on. So uh, I think this is going to be really neat. So uh, first off, let's start with your, your role. So what is your job, basically? Sure, sure. So um, there are two companies that founded Solar Oysters, um, and I am the vice president of business development for Maritime Applied Physics Corporation, the engineering firm um, that's working on the platform design. Nice. So uh, we're going to get into the engineering part of the platform because it's really cool and there's videos you can watch online. We'll uh, show you where to find those. I'll add a link to the show notes as well. Uh, so you can you can check that out at zerowastecountdown.com if you want um, once the show airs. And so let's talk about why oysters. So I was looking up the nutritional quality of oysters and I was blown away at how <laughs> nutritious they are. So can you tell us yeah. a little bit about, about the, the health aspects for people? Absolutely. So oysters are super rich in zinc, iron, selenium, and vitamins B12 and D. And a lot of those nutrients have antioxidant properties that help promote overall health, um, reduce cancer risk, inflammation, all that good stuff. They're also really low in calories yet loaded with all these nutrients and proteins. So it's a really great source of protein, healthy fats, and these vitamins and minerals. So yeah, you can, you know, with a couple of oysters, you can get 100 to 75% of your daily recommended dose of B12 and zinc and copper, and a lot of your needs of vitamin D and selenium. It's pretty amazing. I didn't know that they were so healthy. I used to eat them a lot in uh, British Columbia when I lived near the ocean, but I haven't had them a while. And I think some people are maybe oh, okay. scared, scared to try them. Uh, you can you can cook them, you can eat them raw, right? There's lots of different ways you can eat them. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're, the, the uh, aphrodisiac, uh, they're often yeah. noted as that. And I, I looked into that and that's really about the zinc. So zinc is really oh. good for libido for men and for women. Cool. I forgot about that part. Actually, I, I remember hearing <laughs> that before. That's funny. So they are also uh, good for sustainability. So, you know, there's a lot of talk yes. in the news right now that, you know, don't eat beef, it's bad, and, you know, it's mean to mm. farm animals and all this stuff, right? But oysters um, can actually be raised very sustainably. And I think it's because they don't require a lot of inputs. Is that right? That's a really good point, Laura. So they don't need any fertilizer. They don't need chemicals. They don't need external food stock. You just put them in some water with high salinity and good oxygen levels and they will go. Mm -hmm. And so you guys are designing a new solar oyster project that's going to raise these oysters in a sustainable manner. Uh, so let's hear all about the, the project. Sure, sure. So 
Maritime Applied Physics Corporation, we're a small engineering firm in Baltimore City, and Ecologics, which is an environmental consultancy with experience in aquaculture, came together around the health of the Chesapeake Bay. And we formed this partnership about two years ago to say, okay, what can we do to really help the bay and the environment? And taking what MAPC knows we've done a lot of work for Navy applications, um, Navy platforms. And so one of our designs for a floating platform that could move people and fuel and goods from one smaller Navy boat to another, we thought would be a really great source of reducing thermal shade in the Chesapeake Bay. Well, turns out if you put some solar panels on it, you need a lot of ballast, which is weight at the bottom. And so we thought, well, how about oysters uh, for that ballast? And then we thought, you know, you know, we were we could create energy and we could grow oysters. Um, and wouldn't that be great? And it turns out that the economic benefits of growing oysters far outweigh the energy benefits that we could create with the just the solar panels. So it really quickly evolved into growing oysters as our the primary thing that solar oysters would do and away from solar energy. So there was a bit of a, a pivot in there, it sounds like. It was a pivot. And so now, you know, what we've done with these platforms is they can grow 45 times the um, the amount of oysters in a really, really dense environment as regular um, aquaculture farms, which need a lot of space. They need, you know, the average farm is one to three acres, and we need just 90 by 53 feet to grow a similar amount of oysters. Okay, so if you go and watch the video, it looks like there's these conveyor belts that take, I guess, rows of oysters and they're constantly moving them like down and up, right? Is that like an important yes. part of, of oysters is that they have to go up and down because typically they would be in tides that would go up and down? Right. Well, yeah, that's the crucial um, part of this. So the the automation comes from the solar panels, and they they rotate those cages um, in the water column. So right now we we're looking to have about twenty feet of water in the water column, and they rotate these um, oyster cages up and down in that water column and expose the oysters to varying degrees of salinity and oxygen, um, which, which we think will really promote promote um, high growth rates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty cool to see. So it's basically like a big, would you call it a barge? Yeah, that's that's a good word for it. Yep. A barge, floating platform, operating yeah. platform. Yep. And then it's got the solar panels on top so it can operate these conveyor belts. And then underneath the water is where all the, the oysters are growing. So it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty neat thing. And about like where it goes in the water, um, are these supposed to be close to shore or do they go out a bit? Like, does it matter? Mm. That's a great question. So basically another way to think of it is they, they need about 20 feet of water. So if you're really close to shore, usually you're not going to get that kind of water depth. And that's actually, um, a crucial selling point is that, in the Chesapeake Bay, for example, and other estuaries, you know, the visual impacts of having large aquaculture um, farms close to shore, uh, you know, gets a lot of homeowners to sort of fight fight the permitting process. But so with with our platforms, you know, 
when you need a lot of water, you can have these way far offshore. Um, so it doesn't have the same visual impact. And, you know, you could, you could have these out there and, and nobody really is concerned about that. So yes, generally farther um, from shore. Mm -hmm. And I would think that maybe the water would be a bit cleaner too, if you get them out of those like city areas, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, there's, there's a lot more algae, you know, more exposure to, uh, to things close to shore, which you don't have to worry about. Yeah, instead of the, the pollutants, because I would worry that if oysters were in a polluted bay, that maybe they would accumulate it because they're kind of like these little filters, right? So um, do, you, do you know anything about the pollutants that oysters can take in and, and how yeah. that works? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, so oysters are, they're filter feeders. Um, you know, when we talk about how good a protein source they are for sustainability, I mean, they are taking out some of the, the nutrients that are, we have a lot of excess in our estuaries, which are phosphorus and nit and nitrogen. And they take them out of the water column and into their shells. They actually excrete them into their shells um, and process those. So it's a really great thing for estuaries and, and bays and, and oceans. But at the same time, yes, they can suck up other pollutants, metals, for example, such as copper and cadmium. And because cadmium kind of has the same proteins as zinc, so it, it will eat it and process it thinking it's zinc, I guess. And copper actually is not really a function of how much metals in the water, but really it's about salinity, which is kind of an interesting thing. You know, how much salt is in the water. I listened to one of your previous podcasts about plastics in the ocean. So I did some research about um, oysters and plastics. And there's some new research coming out in 2020 that show that in a laboratory, yes, oysters will suck up those microplastics that you guys were talking about. Wow. But in a, in a, you know, an estuary or an ocean environment, they can be choosy feeders. So they, they tend not to um, take in all that plastic um, in an actual wild environment where they have access to um, other nutrients. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Oh, that's good to know. And I, I find it very interesting that it puts stuff into its shell because I was worried if the pollutants are getting into the oysters, you know, and uh, it's neat to hear that they're putting them in the shells, at least some of them. So, so that's right. good. Yeah. And, and there have been studies, you know, um, I saw a South Korean study where uh, the percentage of, of those pollutants is really way, way, way lower than um, on average 1% of the 100% daily allowed amount of of some of these metals so really minor in terms of uh what they actually a human would ingest mm -hmm. let's talk about the platform a little more because i think that this is a, a very new concept right so can you tell us how farming for oysters is now and then how sure. you're going to change that to make it more efficient Sure. Yeah. So there's a couple different ways that you can farm for for oysters. So there's dredging and trawling and um, using tongs in a sort of a wild oyster reef. And so farmers will lease um, the 
the bed of an estuary and then have access to the oysters at the bottom. And those are, you know, wild caught oysters. And the other way is through aquaculture and cages and cage flipping, which is backbreaking work as well as dredging. And so what we are kind of doing is the aquaculture method where we have the cages, but instead of having to flip those cages every couple of days, all of that manual labor and hard work is is taken out of the process um, and all of that's automated through the solar panels. Mm-hmm. And were you working with the university to do the, the proof of concept or was that your engineering company? We were, yeah. So um, we had a, a grant from the Maryland Industrial Partnership and the Department of Natural Resources with the University of Maryland Environmental Science. And what what we did there was we really tested the mechanics of a really a, a smaller platform um, that just had um, one hanging basket each. And we built three of those platforms and we tested them in Solomon's Island by the University of Maryland. And we learned a lot about wave action and current and the effects that that has on the platform. And so we've incorporated all those changes into our new designs. So... We're excited to actually grow oysters um, in the next iteration. So Nice. So how big is this barge that you plan to make? The barge is 90 by 53 feet. That's the biggest one we, we want to make when we do the full grow out. But as an interim step, we want to, um, again, validate the oyster growth and the, the growth rates with a 20 by 30 foot platform that can take the wave action and um, will grow about 12,000 oysters, um, hopefully for restoration. Um, so we can get in the water really quickly, do some great, great work for oysters and uh, restoration efforts and release those oysters back to the wild. Are the oysters going to go to restaurants mostly? Ultimately, we have about 50% actually going to canned shucked oysters and Mm -hmm. the rest for for restaurants. Okay, so we've got this big barge and then the solar panels, do they cover like the whole top of the barge mostly? Are you using a lot of that space for uh, energy? Yeah, actually about two-thirds. They'll cover about two-thirds of the barge. Yeah. And then I, I assume you have to have some pretty big batteries going on for when the sun goes down? Well, actually, we, we don't want a lot of batteries on there. Um, we, we want maybe half a day's worth of energy storage. So when the sun goes down, you know, the batteries can run. And uh, we also are thinking about having some wind turbines on there, some really small ones for those moments on cloudy days or during storms, because generally there's a, a lot more wind in those circumstances than, than sun. So um, preparing for any kind of eventuality, but they'll be fine for each night. Yeah, and I guess if you're trying to imitate the natural tidal cycle, I guess like maybe you don't have to keep them 100% of the time moving? No, right. You don't you don't have to keep them moving all the okay. time. Um movement is is really good for them. It does it will it will help them and spur them to grow, but yeah, they're usually left in the wild for quite a long time without moving. So, the big thing we're really trying to prevent with the movement, well there's two things. I mean, obviously exposing them to the nutrients to varying salt levels 
um, and oxygen levels, but also preventing biofouling. So we have these a spray wash system at the top at the top of the platform, and so exposing these cages to the spray wash system and getting rid of um, the excrement is something that we each cage will be sprayed at least once a day, which is something again fairly unique to our system, and uh, we hope we'll keep the oysters clean and healthy. And this doesn't have to be manned? Like, is it just towed out in a tugboat and then kind of anchored there and then somebody maybe comes and checks on it every once in a while? Like, no one has to stay on there, right? Well, in the smaller configurations, yes, you can set it and forget it for a couple of weeks. But, you know, like I said, oysters grow really rapidly. So there is still a lot of sorting and processing that needs to happen. So we do have in our, I guess, our pro forma, two to three people manning these baskets, doing the sorting and processing and maintenance work on there. Um, okay, at any cool. one time so well yeah. that's good for creating jobs then because i know sometimes our our fisheries get hit a little bit with declining fish populations so might yeah be yeah it's really one for one labor it's just the labor that is involved is a lot more technical and less manual if that makes any sense yeah yeah absolutely yeah it seems like a, a neat idea and a neat project that I think would be really good. And and like I said in the beginning, I was just so surprised that oysters are so healthy. Um, I just kind of had no idea. And I, <laughs> yeah. I wonder if you could, like, could you use these to clean bays? Like if you're not going to eat them, could you just kind of move these things around a dirty bay and it would maybe help clean up if there was a maybe a spill of pollutants or something? I mean, yeah. No, we've definitely looked into that and we definitely believe that these can be part of what happens to to help clean our bays and estuaries. Each platform, the larger platform, removes 650 pounds of nitrogen and 50 pounds of phosphorus per year. And that's just one platform. And so, you know, a bay as big as our Chesapeake Bay or some of the larger areas, you'd need quite a few of these to to make a dent. But, you know, if you had a small tributary, these could definitely have a really incredible impact. And those were the ones that are going into the shell, right? The phosphorus and the, uh, is it? Correct. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Cause then you still have the highly nutritious, um, high protein food source available for humans after. So that's good. Yeah. And you're also using, you know, some renewable technologies. So I've been on this little thing lately where I'm, I'm not a fan of wind and solar on our grids because I don't know if you know, our Ontario grid is really, really clean, but it's mostly our electricity grid is very clean, but it's mostly because nuclear and the wind mm. and the solar, um, because it's so intermittent and not reliable, it needs to be backed up with nuclear or natural gas. And because the grid is like, you need to have the grid going all the time and have a lot of power on it. Right. So whenever the wind right. blows or the sun shines, we actually end up just selling that off to either some of the United States that surround Ontario or, um, it just gets dumped. And so I don't really think they're like the best things for our electricity grids because you need fossil fuels or nuclear anyway uh, but things like this mm. I think are really really perfect for wind and solar because it's taking away the the need to use a fossil fuel generator or engine or whatever right to be to be doing this so I really like using wind and solar in these kinds of kind of off-grid 
or out in the ocean areas. I think that that's uh, really great. Yeah. Oh, you said it, Laura. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. There are places uh, for them. So I'm glad that you're using the technology for that, um, which is good. And then I did see that there's new nutrient credits on the website. I didn't really understand what that was. So I was just wondering, like, can you explain what nutrient credits are? Sure. Absolutely. So the United States Environmental Protection Agency, some 20 years ago, has asked all the states surrounding the Chesapeake Bay to reduce nitrogen and phosphorus in the bay. And there are a bunch of point sources for these nutrients. Um, Farms, obviously, um, chicken coops, uh, cattle farms, but also, interestingly enough, stormwater runoff, right, from impervious surfaces. So while Cities and these large parking lots, the stormwater runoff is only 16% of the problem. The costs to mitigate these with trenches and and other other ways is very expensive. Um, it's 67% of the value of um, mitigating these nutrients. So the thought is is that farms and oyster aquaculture farms who are able to mitigate and turn turn around the nitrogen and phosphorus levels in the land, they could sell these mitigation, the the nutrient credits by, you know, what they take out of the the estuaries and sell them to point sources that really can't take them out as economically. So really good nutrient credit programs overall have a positive pollution control on these estuaries. And that's the the Chesapeake Bay um, Nutrient Credit Program. So anyway, so yeah, so it's it's a small amount of revenue for things like for our system, it would be about $50,000 a year for us that we could generate in nutrient credits we calculate. So is that a little bit like a cap and trade system? Absolutely. Yep. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, I always see this as like a a higher level kind of thing where we're kind of dealing with pollutants and trade-offs and trading them with different companies so that everything kind of balances out and you're not really punishing people like a tiny bit, you know, that are like polluting too much, but then you're really helping the people who are trying to clean it up. So it's like a good relationship because the cap and trade system has been successful. um, And so this is really neat to hear. I had no idea what they were. So thanks for. Yeah, uh, yeah. We're really happy with the Chesapeake Bay program because it really is a net overall positive benefit. It's it's really working. And it, it's new. It's in its infancy. And we'll see how aquaculture will will improve it. Yeah, that's very exciting. And America always seems to have things going on like this. And I know in the environmental community, everyone's like, oh, well, Europe is doing better, you know, and they Europe does really well uh, with their environmental regulations and, and uh, whatnot. But, you know, America does yeah. too. And sometimes we forget about that, or we don't see it as much because everybody's so busy complaining about it. <laughs> um, so, but if you start to, you know, learn about these things, like the nutrient credit system in the Chesapeake Bay, like you realize that there are so many Americans working on these issues and cleaning things up. And I think that this is really cool if you're listening and you're young and you're kind of interested in engineering, 
but also the environment. I think there's lots of opportunity for you at a lot of the universities as well, it seems. Do you have any advice for anyone who is young, who's listening, who wants to get into a career that has to do with the environment? You know, do you have any uh, any suggestions or insight? I guess I would say, uh, please go for it. We need you so badly. You know, we, Maritime Applied Physics, half of Solar Oysters, we are a, a mostly do Navy related things, but we really wanted to pivot because of global warming and what's happening to our environment. And we need a lot, a lot of engineers to come and and look at these problems and design solutions. So just raise your hand. And good things about small companies like ours is is listening to our engineers, letting them invent and come up with their solutions. So if you've got ideas and things you want to explore, working for a small company is a great way to be able to create proposals and, and do your own thing within the, within the company. It's nice to see something with a bit of of creativity that can do so well. And Elon Musk says things like this as well. Like, why aren't we making more things? You know, stop. stop. (laughs) Right what you're doing and and make something right and i think that that's kind of really neat advice and i'm sure he'd be really happy to hear about this project too because i know he's really into uh harnessing the sun yes yes (laughs) he is yes yeah yeah harder in canada i'll tell you because my oh i know so well but do do you guys get snow very often in the chesapeake bay not really. I mean, we yeah. do, um, but it's been a couple years since we've had a really good snow. Oh, wow. It would be much more, much more efficient, I think, to be down there. So the last question I just wanted to ask you was, how did you get involved with oysters yourself? So I guess from myself, my perspective, I have lived near the Chesapeake Bay my whole life. I did a Chesapeake Bay foundation summer camp it's near and dear to my heart and I think um, as a company we're right on the bay we're on the Patapsco River and we see the effects of you know pollution runoff and global warming every day we're worried about sea level rise as a company and we just really wanted to make some positive changes so oysters are a great way to do that That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, I I often, I've said on the show before, I have this theory that, you know, a lot of people from California seem to really care about the environment. And I think it's because it's so beautiful. And I see that in Australia as well. And I kind of wonder if people are so Mm. environmentally concerned because, you know, their beaches are so beautiful. And when I lived in British Columbia, it was so much cleaner. And I again, theorized that it might be because everywhere you look is beautiful. And then um, Uh there where I live now, there's just like so much more garbage around, but for all of winter, it's very dreary and gray, you know, so maybe people don't care as much. So maybe, I mean, this is just a theory, of course, I could be Mm. wrong, but you know, it's neat to hear you say that you love the place that you live in, Chesapeake Bay, and, and want to take care of it. Makes sense. Yeah. It, it, it does it. I think it really affects how you see the world when you, when you get to see it every day. And, um, you know, programs that expose young, young youth to, to the Bay and give, definitely give everybody a different perspective. So. Is that what your kids program is about? My kids program? Oh yeah. Didn't you say that you had like a, um. Oh, well when I, yeah, no, when I was in summer camp, that was exactly for that purpose. Yeah. We were banning ospreys and, and traveling by canoe all around the, the Chesapeake Bay. It's really neat. 
Yeah, that is really cool. It's important to get outside and now more than ever because of COVID. And I think a lot of us are kind of <laughs> stuck and not getting out as much unless you're a Canadian politician and flying all over the world for your vacations while telling everybody else to stay <laughs> home because that's been in the news a lot lately. Um, oh, but yeah, geez. get outside as much as you can and you might fall in love with things and and get some ideas on how to how to make things better and stuff. So might solve great. some problems on, while you're out there. Yeah. And and make some money, right? <laughs> that would be nice too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. It wouldn't it be neat if somehow we could see in the grocery store that the oysters came from Solar Oyster. Is there is that kind of way too far down the road or have you given that much thought about any sort of like sustainable labeling? That's far down the road, but yeah, it's definitely part of our uh, pro forma and financial model to to do that. We'll we'll see where it goes. Yeah, that just popped in my head that that I would like to know that you know they're coming from there, so that would be neat. Yeah, I would just say that it's really interesting. You know, fifty two percent of all of our seafood comes from aquaculture, and most of it, ninety two percent, comes from Asia. And the U.S. is responsible for only 1% of worldwide aquaculture production. But we take in and we we import about 17%. So, you know, there's a lot of room for growth in this industry and a lot more we can do to to farm sustainably um, all kinds of seafood. Yeah, and, and so I trust our North American regulations and European regulations and stuff um, just to make sure that they're healthy, right? Uh, because I've read some pretty right. bad stories about some farm tilapia um, from different places who may, might not have the, sta- the same strict mm. high level regulations. And so right. I kind of worry about like the quality, but you know, it, and, and again, you can complain about the American uh, FDA and whatever, but I also think that there is a lot of good things about it. Um, so can I ask you about uh, fish farming a little bit just because Sure. there's been something happened recently in British Columbia on the west coast of Canada where they're closing down a whole bunch of fish farms. They just made this announcement and they're salmon farms. So there are some companies that are, are, are farming Atlantic salmon in the Pacific and there are kind of two camps on this. So Michael Schellenberger came on the show and said, Farming fish is the best thing you can do because then you're leaving the wild populations alone. You're giving them time to recover because they're small, they're being depleted, right? So we want to kind of keep our wild spaces going. So if you farm fish, then you're getting all the nutrients because fish is very, very healthy for people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he's in the camp of like, farm fish is a future, let's do it, let's go. And then in Canada, we have people like David Suzuki and different organizations here saying that fish farming is like the worst thing in the world and it's horrible and it's killing off the the native fish populations. So I think we're kind of mm. left here like what's going on. So I just wonder, because you're in this industry a little bit, if you had any uh, input into that. Yeah. I mean, we, we looked at, for example, growing other types of shellfish, right? Like mussels and clams. And that's definitely somewhere we'd like to go and explore. But at the same time, we were, we were taken aback by what happened with invasive um, mussels, the zebra mussel in, in the Great Lakes and other areas. And so I think there's a balance. And I think, um, it's really important to get it right and to do it correctly. And one of the things we've looked at actually is combining 
wind, um, offshore wind with um, oyster aquaculture or fish farms, right? So you've got um, a power source and you've already got these uh, wind turbines out in the ocean. There's a really symbiotic relationship, you know, having having um, operation and maintenance vessels go out there to to fix things. Why not couple that um, together with fish aquaculture or oyster aquaculture um, and really do something a lot more uh, sustainable for both yeah. industries? Yeah, absolutely. And when I was reading into the BC issue of why they're closing down so much fish, it's uh, the sea lice is a big issue. So the sea lice... Uh. They're thinking the wild Pacific salmon are swimming back and forth in the seasons to pass these fish farms and then they're getting some sea lice and so they're kind of blaming it on the fish farms. But then some studies say, well, it's not enough sea lice to kill the wild populations, but the wild populations are going down. But I think it's probably from you know, the giant trawlers that I was in the Navy mm. too, so we would pull into Seattle next to the biggest, most disturbing fishing vessels like just massive massive nets and just huge right so you know if they're going out and taking salmon like is that why they're they're depleting or is it the sea lice from the farms i don't really know there's uh there's a lot of evidence for all sorts of of arguments on either side here's here's an interesting article i read is that at least in in the oyster aquaculture industry there's this bacteria that can get into wild oysters and for some time, they were worried that aquaculture-raised oysters were contributing to the bacteria. Actually, they take away the bacteria um, if they're grown quick, quick enough, right? So they're, you know, they get to three three inches and they're removed from from the water. It actually has found to decrease the these bacteria in wild-grown oysters. So there's so much we're still learning about the industry and and how to do it right. So. Hopefully they'll get it right where you are and where we are. So yeah, we definitely want to make sure we we start small and incrementally with these little platforms, see how it goes, see what the effects are, study it with the scientists, and then move on from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very exciting, I think, to uh, to figure these things out. And humans are very smart, and we've been doing really cool things, and I think we can work in harmony with the planet and and producing food and uh and not harming the wild spaces and and cleaning things up and stuff like that so i think that this is a really good example of that so um yeah awesome thank you very much elizabeth oh my gosh thank you laura really appreciate it and uh i'm excited for your project and to get to net zero hopefully (laughs) we can contribute to that and uh in some small way yeah, this is this is great. You know, my my zero waste uh, living has not been so zero waste over COVID. So I've went back to buying a little <laughs> bit of packaging just because I don't want to stand in a, a an hour lineup. It's hard. I know. Yeah. yeah. So I have introduced, but I went I went a good three years without producing hardly any trash at all. Um, now we produce a tiny That's bit. Incredible. Still very very low, very low. And then um, if you have anything new come out later, just let us know and. Uh, you can come back on and tell us all about it. Great. Laura, thanks so much. That was Elizabeth Hines from Solar Oyster. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.